Our sermon text for the second Sunday of Easter comes from the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in chapter 20, uh, verse 19, and read on through verse 31. So if you're able, I'd ask you to please rise again for the hearing of God's holy word, and we read it in Jesus' name. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And he put out his hand and Place it in his, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And we ask that you would sanctify us by that truth. Lord, as we now take a look at this passage from John chapter 20, I pray that you would show us our sin a need for a savior. God, strengthen our faith faith, and ready us for your service, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may or may not be aware of this, but our very first president, George Washington, had amazingly bad teeth. By the time of his first inaugural address in 1789, he had only one remaining tooth. It's well known that George Washington needed to use dentures for a large chunk of his life. But something not everyone knows is the material that these dentures were made out of. Today, modern dentures are are made out of various products, including porcelain or acrylic resin for the teeth themselves. And the framework that holds the teeth can be made from various types of plastic or even molded out of certain metals like cobalt or chrome. But in the former days of dentistry, you would use teeth from other animals or even teeth from other people. Sometimes teeth were carved from ivory or even formed out of lead, which had to be healthy, or gold. George Washington's dentures, though, were a bit unique because his dentures were made out of wood. The main advantage of this was the cost, as they were much more economical to produce and to repair. And the maintenance of them was another advantage. If the dentures were ever uh, to break, they could easily be repaired by George Washington himself rather than having to call in a dentist to repair them. It made them quite a convenient option, though they weren't as comfortable as other dentures from the era. I don't know if you've heard that story about George Washington or not, but if you've heard it and believed it, I have to tell you you've been deceived. It, just like the other story about George Washington chopping down a cherry tree, is a commonly held myth about our first president. Uh, 
George Washington certainly did have bad teeth, and he definitely wore dentures for a large chunk of his life, but they were made out of the more traditional denture materials of ivory, lead, and gold. These, the teeth themselves that George Washington had were carved from ivory, and as they aged, they gathered stains, and the stains on those teeth gave them the appearance of wood, and that's where the myth originated. The most believable lies always sound like the truth. And it helps if the lies can contain a bit of truth as well, especially if you can easily confirm it. It also really helps if the lie is something that the hearer wants to believe. You can suspend a lot of doubts and questions if you want something to be true, even if it doesn't seem to be very likely. So this myth about George Washington, it kind of ticks all the boxes, doesn't it? George Washington certainly had bad teeth, and he wore dentures. We can confirm that by looking back in history. And it also sounds true, because we know that dentistry a few hundred years ago is much different and much more primitive than it is today. And this particular myth is also something that I think we wanted to be true, because it would be a fun story if it actually was. Teeth made of wood is fascinating, and it's strange, and it's quirky, and I would love this to be a true story, but it simply isn't. You see, in life, many times, it can be hard to determine what things are true and what things are lies. It can be hard to know where to place our trust, because we have all had, all, we have all had things in our lives that we thought to be true that turned out to be false, and there have also been things in our lives where we were sure they were wrong, that they were lies, but they turned out to be absolutely true. There are also things we know to be trustworthy, and yet we can't seem to get rid of our doubts in them. And there are things we know to be false, but we can't help but believing them just a little bit. This morning, our sermon text dealt a lot with faith and doubt. Because we have in this account the story of Thomas the doubter, who refused to believe that Jesus was risen until he could see Jesus with his own eyes and touch Jesus with his own hands. Then in the last couple of verses, John tells us the purpose of his book as well. And that's so that after we read it or after we hear it, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God's anointed, the promised Messiah, and that by believing in him and that he is the Son of God, we might be saved and have life in his name. Our pericope for today centers around both doubt and faith. As things start out, we have Jesus or the account of Jesus appearing to his disciples, except for Thomas. Jesus appears to them, even though they had locked themselves in for the fear of the Jews. But a locked door wasn't enough to stop the resurrected Jesus. He appeared amongst them right in their midst and didn't even use the door. I really can't imagine what that would have been like, being in the shoes of those disciples. Because I get jump scared when I get stuck in my own little world working on something and someone shows up in an unexpected way. I've never had someone appear behind a closed door. So I, I'm sure it would terrify not just me, but all of us if it actually happened. So it's not at all surprising that the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, peace be with you. You don't need to be afraid. It's me. I was crucified. I died. I was buried. But I am alive now, and I am with you. 
After he commissions the disciples, he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. Thomas wasn't there, so he didn't get to experience any of these things, and apparently he didn't consider the testimony of the other disciples to be enough. They told Thomas that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, but Thomas didn't believe them. And before he would believe them, there were criteria that needed to be met. He said, unless I place my hands in the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Thomas gets called doubting Thomas quite a bit. And to be fair, it's not a totally wrong description, but I don't think Thomas was the only one that had doubts. Remember, Mary Magdalene was the first person to bring testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead, and yet we find the disciples in this house with a locked door cowering in fear because they were scared of the Jews. And also, remember, a good lie has to contain either some truth or be something that you want to believe. And Thomas would have wanted this to be true, even though it seemed impossible. So if you take a look at Thomas from a different perspective, Thomas is just being reasonable and practical. He isn't giving in to what he wants to be true. He isn't being led astray by a well-spun story. If he's going to believe in something that should be impossible, he wants proof before he'll trust it. So he wants to see Jesus with his own eyes and touch Jesus with his own hands before he will believe the unbelievable story. However you look at it, though, at the beginning of our story, Thomas is still left without faith in the resurrected Lord. But thankfully, Jesus loves Thomas. Jesus knows Thomas's doubts. Jesus knows Thomas needs proof, and he delivers. He shows up once again in the midst of the disciples, even though once again the doors are locked. And again, he begins by offering them peace. And then he turns directly to Thomas, inviting him to place his fingers into the holes in his hands and place his hand into his side. Jesus offers all the proof that was necessary for Thomas to believe. He offers all the proof that Thomas had demanded. But when Thomas is faced with his resurrected Lord, he doesn't put his hand in Jesus' side or his fingers into the holes in Jesus' hands. Instead, he simply confesses, my Lord and my God. It's a very simple confession of faith that Thomas shares. The doubts were gone and Thomas believed. You see, Jesus was very gracious to Thomas and offered him everything he needed so that he might believe that Jesus had risen from the dead and thereby be saved. As Jesus finishes speaking to Thomas and the disciples, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John tells us why he recorded this gospel. He did so so that we might hear of Christ who lived a sinless life in our place, who suffered, was crucified, and died bearing our sins and paid the full price for them on the cross. That same Jesus rose again three days later to guarantee eternal life for all who would believe. Wouldn't it be nice if when we had doubts, Jesus would just show up wherever we were, in the flesh, say, peace be with you, I am here, Go ahead, it's really me. Touch me if you want to. Don't disbelieve, but believe I died for you, and yet I live. You are now forgiven. Eternal life is yours. 
You can stake your life upon it because you have seen me. But that's not how things work. You see, Thomas was a special case, and we aren't quite blessed in the same way. It also isn't as if just because Jesus doesn't show up physically that we don't ever have doubts, because we all do. Doubts can creep in when life is hard. They can creep in when we lose those that we love, when we hit those times where it's tough to make ends meet. They can creep in when life just isn't going very well. All of those things can lead us to doubt, to wonder if God truly loves us, if God really cares, if his word can really be trusted. And maybe the biggest thing that can lead us to doubt is taking a long look at our own lives and seeing our sin. Martin Luther once said, if I examine myself, I find enough unholiness to shock me. And I would agree. When I look at myself, I begin to doubt that I could possibly be loved by God, that I could possibly be a person who could be forgiven for all the sinful things I have done. And I think that the Apostle Paul might have felt that way as well when he penned words like, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. You see, those doubts tend to creep in, and it can be difficult to shake them at times. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus could just show up and say, peace be with you? and drive those doubts away. While he doesn't show up in the same way as he did with Thomas, Christ has promised that he is with us. He has promised that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there among us. He has promised that every time his word is read, he meets us there. He comes to us through his word. When a child is brought to the waters of holy baptism, like Warren Gorder was this morning before the service, Christ meets that child in the waters. And it is he that does the washing there and not the pastor. When we go to the Lord's Supper, what we receive is not just wine and bread, but instead Jesus has told us that it is his holy body and blood that we receive, given for us and shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, Jesus may not show up for us in the same way that he did for Thomas, but that doesn't mean Jesus has left us alone. When we doubt, when we feel unlovable, when we feel like we are unredeemable, what we need as Christians is for Jesus to meet us one more time. So thankfully, we can always find him where he's promised to be. He's together with us as we gather as the church. He is here as we read, study, and sing his holy word. He was there in the waters of your baptism. He is there as we go to the Lord's table, which we will do shortly. He is there to say to us, peace be with you. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You are my beloved child, and it is for you that I died. Everything that I accomplished with my perfect and sinless life and all atoning death on the cross and resurrection are enough for you and for your sins. So as we now prepare to go once again to the Lord's table, Remember that Jesus has promised to meet you there in those elements. So come confessing your sin, including any doubts or struggles that you may have, and trust that the Lord Jesus gives you there his holy body and blood, given and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust that it is enough even for you. And when you leave here, leave in peace, knowing that by grace and through faith, 
You are one of God's beloved saints, washed clean in the blood of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to once again gather in your house and to receive good gifts. Thank you for your presence here among us as we are gathered in your name. Thank you for coming to us as we read and heard about your word. And thank you for the promises that we've been given at your table. Allow us to freely confess our sins and to trust in your forgiveness offered there. We pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.